This is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty and Sweat the Details. This week, Jonathan, Keith, and I were joined by Lyle Sola Yates, who is in the IT industry for the University of Virginia, lives in Charlottesville, where he serves as a planning commissioner, and is an independent researcher. This is a big and heady conversation, and is the start of what is going to be a needed and necessary ongoing conversation that starts in many ways with how realtors, originally known as real estate men, were at the forefront of implementing racially-based zoning and restrictions, and how those, combined with urban planning designed to affect racial segregation, continues today. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We did, and we're looking forward to digging in more as the season continues. Hey, everybody. This is Jim Duncan with Nest Realty and Sweat the Details, sitting here with Jonathan Kaufman and Keith Davis. Uh, our guest this week is Lyle Sully Yates, and uh, should have a really fascinating conversation. Um, Lyle, welcome. Appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, I'm a, a planning commissioner by night and as well as a, a researcher, and I'm a IT guy by, by day. I uh, just uh, have a passion for uh, planning. I have an undergrad and graduate degree in, in, in planning, and I think that land use is important to how people live. Very cool. Um, so we were doing our research, uh, and we're in, in you know, new and interesting times now. Uh, as yeah. we're doing our research on you know, sort of who you are and what you do, uh, you know, we'll put links to all the stuff in our show notes. But I'm going to just go ahead and read the, the pinned tweet that you have um, from 23 January 2018. You say, I'm excited so many people are interested in my current research. I'm investigating the connections between white supremacy, segregation, and modern anti-housing policy in the U.S., focusing on Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, I mean, so tell us what that means. I mean, I think that it's, you know, for a lot of our audience, I think that the connection between white supremacy and housing policy is not something they would naturally pull that pin and, pull, and, can, I, and, and draw can I just together. say, Law, when you're saying this, I, I really want to focus on the fact that you call it anti-housing policy, that it's it's not a focus on housing policy at all. It's the exact opposite is what you want to study. So, sorry. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, lots of people talk about um, sort of African-American history and lots of people talk about housing policy. I study the opposite um, because I think that that's more important in, in order to understand the shape of things. Um, and I actually I, I'm, I'm delighted that people have, have gotten interested in this. I really thought that it would just be me, um, but it's it, it's turned out to be of, of, of wide interest. So how does it I mean? So, I mean, illuminate a little bit. You know, how does white supremacy lead to anti-housing policy from a local perspective and global? And sort of how did that get, you know, not, not to say how it got started, but who were some of the leaders of that in the early days, if you will, that have form, formed and formulated our cities that we, as we know them today? That's what I've been really interested in. Uh, and we've, we've had a lot of uh, historians who have been done a lot of great work uh, here in the Charlottesville region. Um, the... Uh, it really, in, in my view, it starts around the, the teens uh, with uh, what I call race, racial zoning or segregation, uh, which you, you probably learned about in class uh, and probably learned in 1917. Supreme Court uh, looked at it, said, this is pretty unconstitutional. Buchanan v. Worley, 1917, no more explicit racial zoning. You just you have to shut that down. Um, so I went back and looked at the records of when the urban planners met in 1917 to talk about this. And they are all actually, sorry, in 1918, early in 1918, just after. And they were all freaked out. What do we do? The Supreme Court is against us. Everything that we do is illegal. We have to think of new things. Uh, so the, uh, the, the sort of uh, big thinkers at that time talk about, well, there are, there are different ways that we can get at racial segregation. We can look at um, sort of dimensional requirements. We can 
require that houses be only a, you know a certain size or a certain certain shape, certain distance from the road, and take up a certain amount of space on the lot. Uh, as well, we could we could cap uh, how many people are allowed in an area, uh, control dwelling unit uh, units per acre, uh, or what we call density today. Uh, we could uh, control type. We could say well only only single family homes should be allowed. We could say that uh, well only you know lots of a certain size should be allowed. Small lots shouldn't be allowed. And all the, these are different ways of getting at racial segregation. We can't. We don't have. We we we, we are, we're not allowed to say we are doing racial segregation anymore, but we can just do it sneakily. Um, although uh, a bunch of places like Richmond, like Atlanta, went ahead and just said what they were doing anyway. The courts didn't like that. But as long as you don't say what you're doing, the courts are. But Lyle, let's let's take a step back. I mean, the, even if it was being banned from the court side, we certainly still had developers utilizing. Uh, racial covenants. You still, as you pointed out, there were plenty of of other ways around it. Um, density things things that today, as we talk about expanding density, as we talk about accessory dwelling units and neighborhoods, the same exact things are being done by urban planners right now to increase the socioeconomic diversity within neighborhoods. So, when did these when did urban planners or when did developers really get into the act and say this is the this is the path that we think the the country holds for our future of of real estate development? That the, the, the time of change is really just after World War I. Uh, there's a sort of a, a, a boom, and it really gets going in the 20s when there's a lot of development, a lot of subdivision. And that, that is led by the private sector. Uh, uh, J.C. Nichols uh, in Kansas City really kind of figures out how to do subdivision the way we understand it now. Uh, and then just tells all the other real estate men, here's what I figured out in Kansas City. Go, go copy it everywhere. And they do. Go back to that you know, real estate men. What are you talking about? Oh, the real well, you, they call them realtors today. It's a it's a strange term. But in in in, <laughs> in, uh, in 1912 to 1917, there were the real estate men. Uh, the, the okay. were, it was a little bit clunky. It was too long, so they had to. And so the, and so the realtor community okay. was not just complicit; they were absolutely part of the entire process. Yes, uh, essential. Uh, did a lot of the real uh, the not just the research and development and the marketing that was really essential, uh, as well as the the government relations getting. Uh, uh, government leaders to understand and support it, getting the policy in place for planning. Yeah, so I don't, life. unfortunately, I don't have the dates at the top of my head, but I mean, the, the code of ethics that we operate under today is dramatically different from the code of ethics as it started, which part of that initial code stated that it was against the realtor code to place a person into a neighborhood if it might cause strife, or I can't remember the exact wording of, of what they're doing, but it was very clear racial segregation is is our job um and that was what i started jim do you remember when that was taken out was it the 50s it feels like the 50s is when it when that was uh that was edited out um but i'm still yeah i'm sorry i'm still i'm still on the you know i and i know it's you know i've studied this a little bit but it's still painful to hear you say that the foundational the organization that we all live and breathe under and from from a practical perspective is one of the not the genesis, but one of the the key supporters from you know they, they got us to where we are today. I was um, shocked. I couldn't believe it. So, from a planning perspective, you know, we you know tell me a little bit about this. Uh, I'll say character uh, Bartholomew. Um, you know, it's you know, you've, you've done a bunch of research on Charlottesville, but it's not just a Charlottesville thing. This this gentleman was nationwide, worldwide. Uh, who was he, and what did he? How, how did he lead us to where we are? Harlan Bartholomew, very uh, um, 
uh, hardworking, uh, educated young man, bright future ahead of him, engineering degree, uh, goes to St. Louis as the, as their first uh, the first like career planner. He was an urban planner for a job. It wasn't just contract work. That was new. He was the first. They uh, wanted him to build a, a city plan. They tried to do a lot of different things, and none nothing really worked out. There's a lot of embarrassment. Um, they thought that comprehensive city planning was was the future. Uh, copying some some work that he had done in New Jersey, uh, and he studied what had been done in Berkeley, done in Kansas City, um, and thought that well, really we could do aggressive single-family zoning uh, in on a, a comprehensive scale citywide. Um, there would be other zones as well, but you know mostly single-family, um, what we call Euclidean zoning today. He invented in St. Louis uh, and presented it nationally, and it was hugely influential became it, it caught fire it just it, it took over the country took over uh, so law, good portions of the law world. what are i mean Single what are some zoning. of the things that specifically that he did that that brought the segregation was it just making it single family i mean taking away the multi-family is was enough to segregate a neighborhood because of cost or right the yeah so this is much closer to um uh the, the, the end of slavery. So the wealth differences between um, African-Americans and, and, and uh, whites, although significant today, very big in the teens, um, really, really significant. Um, so uh, making different types of housing available to different groups at different prices in different places, really powerful at that time, um, determinative. And that, I mean, that, again, that's, that, that, transference of generational wealth from then to you know 2020 hasn't really diminished uh because they, they started at a lower you know lower point to, to and then single family zoning kept them kept us separated for you know till today in many ways right that's just there's so much time added onto it it's right. actually I, I suspect harlan bartholomew would be horrified uh, that it's gone as far as it has. I, he, when he's talking about it in 1917, uh, 1918, he isn't thinking about it as, you know, covering the world. He's talking about it as, you know, a part But Bartholomew of, then so. comes in and, and plans Richmond, plans, works in the Charlottesville yep. area as well, did he not? Yep. He did. It won many, many, many places. The entirety of the state of Hawaii, Vancouver, Mexico City did consulting. Uh, and just un unbelievably influential. Um so was was transportation? I mean, tell, tell me about the transportation component. I mean, it was it wasn't just you know here are the single family houses. It was like transportation networks that led to more you know, segregation as well. Yes, that was his big idea, and something he insisted on was comprehensive planning. He thought that land use planning and transportation planning should be done all together. It's a good um, idea. Which actually, I think, <laughs> makes is sense. A pretty good idea. Like, good good job, Harlan Bartholomew. Yeah. Um, except he he took the same biases. To, that he had in land use, he took that into transportation as well. Uh, so as soon as um, uh, we be began to talk about uh, in initially slum slum removal and then urban renewal, um, he realized that could be a huge moneymaker uh, to run uh, uh, large transportation projects through historically African-American uh, areas or, or in, in, in the Pacific North, Northwest uh, uh, Asian areas, and in the Southwest um, uh, Hispanic areas. Um, so he targeted race, you know, races to 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 rend them apart. Correct, systematically. And when, it, 
Yeah. Sorry, no, I mean, these pauses that you're, you're every, hearing are just us kind of being flabbergasted by thinking about anyone who could possibly propose this type of policy today. When so how long did how long did the urban planning departments actively seek segregation to continue to be a policy? That's a very because you think there's question. some that still do. So I took a planning commissioner certification a couple of years ago, and there was urban renewal material in that in the 2020s. So yes, a lot of this material is still out there, is still being taught. Sorry. And what's an example? What's an example of the of what you say is still being taught? Just out of curiosity. So when I was uh, learning to become a planning commissioner, uh, we talked about uh, blight removal and blight remediation, uh, which is a very old term. Uh, that's a term from the slum removal days in the teens, um, and we just passed it forward. It's the same. It's still there. And using eminent domain to take over neighborhoods for the public good. Yes, that's that. That was the Kilo decision. That's still law. And Kilo was within the last twenty years, fifteen years ago, something like that. And that was um, we'll we'll reference this in the in the show notes as well. But that was one that a significant eminent domain decision that had significant impact in that in that area and across the country. Still happening. Uh, so. Again, 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 to echo Keith, the, the pauses are because this is not easy stuff to discuss, and it's kind of stunning to hear it in such you know simple terms. Um, so the transportation had an impact on 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 everything. Single family zoning had an impact on everything. So today, you still have localities, and we're looking through the lens of the Charlottesville area, but it's not just Charlottesville, that are so focused on having exclusively single family zoning. You know, it, what is the what is the opposition to looking at more diverse housing types? And, is, is, and what's a path forward to recognizing that in order to speak to a, a wider market, we need to have wider housing styles in the right locations close to transportation hubs? It, you, you sound like me. <laughs> the, the, the challenge, as I understand it, is uh, we spent a lot of money uh, convincing people that this was normal and good. Uh, and that anything different is bad and should be prevented. And we need to spend a lot of time and money convincing people that cities are okay. Which, which if we, you know, if we look at and we talk about the demographic shifts that we're seeing throughout the country, and this is not, it's absolutely present in, in many of the localities in which Nest operates, and, and Charlottesville certainly one as well, for un, until the coronavirus, which has certainly raised another question that I think is at least a short-term movement on this, but there has been a push with home buyers to, re to return back to the city, right? There is a um, the suburban world that that kind of quest is, seems to be somewhat subsiding, and there's a larger portion of people who want to be within tighter communities. Um, what? So let's let's kind of shift this if we can, Lyle, in terms of not just the history of our planning, but our future of the planning. What can we do, or what should we be doing? in urban planning to enhance socioeconomic diversity. What is it that can happen? What, what are some of the just what are some of the few things? Is it just allowing accessory dwelling units? Is that is that a big one or is that a minor one? That's an easy one. So I, I do endorse it. The um, accessory dwelling units, the idea is that you can uh, allow people to uh, build another home either inside their existing home 
maybe behind to the side, um, not terribly offensive visually from the street. Uh, people might not even know that person is there, but there is a home for someone who needs a home. That's something I've, I've endorsed in Charlottesville. We have, we kind of have an ordinance, but it's uh, very restrictive. It doesn't allow. In so, many so here we actually people. have. The, there's the R1, and then there's also R1 small and R1. Ironically, the smaller the lot, the more likelihood that you actually can place another house on the property. What's the logic? What what is is it just that the wealthier people are in R one and would block it if you tried to institute? Okay, so we're we're getting a nod from yeah. from Lyle yes. for those who are who can't see the face. But it, it, so in this is just, it, so it's Politics. purely just a not in my backyard. This is all a NIMBY piece. Yes, that drives land use decisions. It's upsetting. It's not the public. Um, so this this past year, I don't remember the the legislator who proposed uh, in the state of Virginia a uh, removal of all single family zoning, right? That you could no longer zone intentionally to do that. Is there is there life on on bills like that in in Virginia and in other states? Oregon did it, I think. Oregon did it. Minneapolis. Yeah. Minneapolis did Minneapolis. it. Uh, oh, California has talked about it several times. Um, but was the impetus for that um, more of let's get more let's get it more denser, or was it was it really focused on socioeconomic diversity and making cities more diverse? Because when I read the stories about it, and I read the we read the stories about it, we've actually talked about it in the past on on this podcast. Most of it was just based on density. It seems like it was density. Yeah, um, you know, we want to re we want to reduce traffic and things like that. But you know, that that could have been what the reporter drew from it. So I'd love to hear Lyle if you if you have any insight into that or if you've kind of done any research on those decisions that have been made in the past year. If that you think if you think that the socioeconomic diversity was a was a big driver behind those decisions. Right. I, I'm most familiar with Minneapolis. That's Those are the, the people I know best and the, the story I understand best. And there, they really did a, a hard look at their history, really digging into, okay, why are we such a, a separated society? Why, how did this happen? How did you know we become a city of haves and have-nots? Who made those decisions and why? And they didn't like what they saw, and it made them think that they needed to make a change. So that, that was really uh, right. an idea of justice and rights, I, I think is a much better idea than density. Density, yeah, good. How how fast did that come about? I mean, was it something that had been talked about for thirty years, or is it something that it came about in eighteen to twenty four months? I mean, what was that? You know, the speed or velocity of that change? My sense from from start to finish is about five years. That's that's okay. my impression. Which, you know, in in, in land use planning circles, that's fast. All right. So what are what are some other what are some other goodies that you guys are working on? What what would have what may be a more difficult decision, but would still have major impact. So one very frightening idea that we've talked about in Charlottesville that they've, they've done in Arlington is to allow uh, uh, different housing types near transit, uh, what's called transit-oriented development. Mm -hmm. um, the idea being if people can take transit, they will. If they live near it, if they work near it, they, they won't drive. If it's not convenient to drive, they won't do it. Um, a lot of skepticism about, about this. Uh, people feel that if people have the ability to drive, they will regardless of r reason or logic. And th they have some evidence for that as well. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you look at Arlington, it works. Well, I mean, I think you're seeing now, you know, the um, the, the number of uh, people who are riding bicycles now, because, I mean, because of coronavirus. 
is skyrocketing. Uh, bike shops are slammed. I, mean, I went to my local bike shop and they said, yeah, we can get you in uh, in about six weeks for some maintenance. Uh, I mean, you read countless stories about how bikes are proliferating. Um, I got the new magazine from Trek today, and like the whole thing is, is talking about going by bike. So I think that we have an opportunity maybe to capitalize on new new <laughs> bicycles, not new, uh, transportation trends to, to sort of push this stuff forward. Um, you know, I mean, how do we how do we do it? I mean, Lyle, you tell us. I mean, it's not again, not just Charlottesville, but uh, in, throughout the country. How do we affect better, more effective transportation plan, tra- transportation and housing planning? Because it's not there's not transportation, there's not housing. They're necessarily intertwined. Because uh, you get a cheap house that's seventy five minute drive, that's not a cheap house. Um, you get a more expensive house that's a four minute walk or four minute bike ride. That's a much more affordable solution for that buyer. So another essential one is don't force people to pay for parking. Allow them to pay for parking, but don't make them. If people want to ride a bicycle, if they want to ride transit, allow that. Um, something we, we mandate in Charlottesville pretty much everywhere now. Uh, if you want to build a lot of homes, you're building a lot of parking, and those people are paying for that parking, regardless of whether it makes sense, regardless of whether there's a need. And what's the the general ratios of the number of units or number of square feet in a building for, you know, equals X number of parking spots. You're, you're, you're advocating that that's kind of an archaic approach to things. It was intended for greenfield, large lot, you know, suburban locations where everybody would be driving. Not everybody lives there. What has the what has the impact been around the university where parking there was higher density allowed with less parking? Um, what has been the impact on on street parking on traffic? Has it had the impact that the city had hoped it would have in reducing the number of students bringing cars on grounds? We don't know. <laughs> it's been uh, like eight years. While <laughs> how can you say you don't? We we still don't know, we still don't have a clue how many people are bringing cars. <laughs> I have my own guess. Well, we certainly certainly there's there's enough study we, on Rugby Road of traffic, right? I mean, we know how many cars there are in the fall and spring terms versus summer, right? Yes. So is it going up or down? We don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, well, pro- I mean, do I, what, is, what is your theory, Lyle? My personal impression is that if you build it, they will come. If you don't build it, they won't come. If you don't give students parking, they will not park where they, they aren't parking. That makes you sense mean, to me. You mean they'll walk or ride bikes if they, they can't have a car? They won't bring the car. Yeah. And, right, because there's no place to put it. They leave it at home. And that's not, again, that's not just universities. That's, I mean, that's cities and, and you know, even the exurbs where you know, you're seeing you know, vast amounts of, of parking, but now – you know, they, well, today, today, uh, today's Thursday. Everything is busy, but usually everything is is empty right now, and people are still surviving and they're still getting things. Um, is this a, a thing that we we can capitalize going forward through the rest of 2021, 22? That's something I've been really interested and excited about. Is is many cities, you know, all around the world, just not just in the U.S., have started to look around and say, "Oh, you know, we're not really using you know this six lane highway. We're not really using this three blocks of parking. Maybe we could." Have people do have businesses there? Maybe we could have people, you know, sit down and, and and eat a meal or get around by foot. Maybe we can make make space. Maybe we can rearrange and sort of 
adapt the city to what's happening in the world right now, which I think is great. That seems really smart to me. Uh, we've done absolutely none of that in Charlottesville, but many places are doing great things. Look, look at Paris. Don't look at Charlottesville. Look at Paris. <laughs> I mean, Paris has opened up, you know, massive amounts of, of roads to, to bikes and pedestrians. And it's, um, I've seen the battles, you know, between New York City and, and Paris. Uh, New, York is, New Yorkers are advocating for more and looking at Paris as the, you know, as the, the enemy, if you will, of New York. Jim, remember, um, remind me, and maybe Lyle will know as soon as I start talking about it, somewhere in Europe had super blocks. Yeah, that's a, can you talk about that for a second? Because I I've seen photos of it, but I don't know how it works or its purpose. But I think if I can, it's very close to my heart. And actually, we have a super block in Charlottesville. This was popular in the United States. The Spanish copied it from us. Um, yeah, it's true. Uh, the downtown mall started in downtown mall in Charlottesville started as a, a super block. Uh, the, uh, the the urban renewal folks thought that was a great idea. Um, so what's the, what, my, my, my role is to ask the dumb questions. What's the super block? Super block. Uh, so imagine a, a simple city block like in New York City. Okay. Then take a, a bunch of blocks around it, lasso them all together, and cut out all the uh, cut-through traffic. Now all the space in, inside the, uh, that, those many blocks, that's space for playgrounds, that's space for um, uh, places to eat a, eat, a, eat, a, uh, eat a good meal or um, just relax. Walk, walk. And, and, and walk has less transportation, noise, pollution, etc. So, where where else has that been done around the world, and and how do we do it more here? <laughs> the actually, I'm really excited about what they're doing in uh, the Netherlands, uh, Utrecht, uh, where else? Um, Groningen uh, have take, taken you know huge sections of the city and said you know you can drive to them, but you can't drive through them. So people who live there. Don't have to worry about through traffic, you know, possibly hurting them or at least being, you know, very noisy or unpleasant. They're just, they can. Well, I will say the one, the one place as you're saying this, and I haven't thought about it before just now, and so maybe I'm off on its, the the similarities. But the one place that we see in the United States where this has absolutely taken hold is every college campus, right? The colleges who own their own grounds have built their walls around their grounds now remove the cars, remove the roads, make walkways instead. And you basically have circles of roading, you know, around every campus that the cars can go to. And then you're required to walk through the campus, um, which just makes for a more interactions between people. It, it, you know, makes for a lighter mood, if you will. Um, certainly less noise, less pollution. So it is a cool, cool thought. I'm a big fan. The University of Virginia has done that. UC Davis is another great example. The um, it, it it's sort of I feel bad for the students, you know, sort of living that that sort of urbanist dream life, and then having to go to an American city and realize like, oh, actually, there's no, it's not like that in the real world. You have to you have to drive everywhere in the states. Yeah, very strange. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that you know one thing I want to touch on, and and we're we're nearing the end of our time. You know, I think that um, you know. And this is putting a big question on you. Um, you know, our, you know, our, our, one of our many roles as realtors in our communities is to be aware of and focused on, you know, affordable housing, which affordable is a sliding scale. Um, I mean, are, are there any one or two things that you would? I mean, there's no easy, you know, what what can we do? But what are one or two things that we could say? This is a thing that we should be aware of and working towards to affect this type of change to facilitate more. You know more affordable housing in 
you know, our locality, obviously, but, you know, across the country. So something we, we really did right in Charlottesville was commission a housing needs assessment, where we just look, looked really in a detailed way, what's missing, where are the problems, what are the failures? So we could really say, oh, actually, we're pretty good at, you know, this kind of high-end condo for this kind of person, but not really good at, say, row houses for this kind of person. Um, and once we actually knew where the problems were, that really helped us guide policy because every place is going to have slightly different problems. Though I bet they'll all have a lot of single family zoning, just a guess. <laughs> okay. So I mean, so, I mean start with start, you know, start with the start with the needs and work work from there. Um yeah, God, it's in, in the pause that again, lots of pauses in this in this episode because it's just there's really big topics we're dealing with. Um I mean the the last question I'll say is you talked, er, you know, very early on in this conversation about how in the seventeen eighteen, the zoning went from, you know, the Supreme Court said, you know, you can't do this anymore. So people, the realtors said, okay, great. How can we affect this you know, same, same thing in a different way? Um, are you seeing, you know, the coverage restrictions and some subdivisions that we see, they still have some latent racism in there to be to put a point on it. Absolutely. Um, you know, is is that something that is, you know, that they're speaking out, that neighborhoods are speaking out against, you know, or are they just letting them, letting the you know, sleeping dogs lie uh, as these things just people ignore them over the years? You know, I, I, I grew up in a, um, a, a streetcar suburb that was almost certainly segregated white, and pretty much everybody around me was a lot like me, and I sort of took that for granted as, as normal. And I suspect that's true for a lot of people. They, they, they don't really wonder, like, gee, it's, it's weird that, uh, it's just people like me around here. Why would, you know, they sort of take it for, for granted. The Supreme Court said it would called it uh, de jour segregation. Um, it seems natural. Uh, you have to question it. Yeah, I don't have a good response to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, other, other than, I think that you know the the you know the episode we had last week was a vastly different topic, but the the one of the things that we took away from that is. We should all be curious about everything with which we interact, and we should question things around us. Um, so I think that's that's sort of my takeaway that I'll sort of lead into to Jonathan. If you want to take the the, the closing question, um, sure. So you know, we uh, I'd like to maybe take a little spin on our typical closing question. We typically say, "What's the one detail that you sweat kind of on a daily basis?" But I want to spin it a little bit. Maybe talk a little bit more from the perspective of a collective. So I'll say, you know, what's the one detail that we as a collective society should sweat um, when it comes to housing planning and creating more socioeconomic diversity in our communities moving forward? What's kind of the one thing that we should all be paying attention to and really focusing on? And I know that one, you know, maybe one thing won't move the needle that much it's going to take a lot of things to move the needle but if you if you had one place to start uh one detail that we should be really focusing on what what would that be when thinking about land use regulations ask yourself is this getting us to the society we know we want to be yeah yeah uh, that's great well, i mean i think Keith. i think my my hesitation on that and I don't disagree with that as a ultimate goal. I think my concern is is that 
I think there are a lot of people who would like our society not to be the society that I want to live in. And so if they are the people in power and in control of the land use, then we're going to land up with a world that is directed by that. Um, and, you know, I, I was reading recently about uh, the fact that it is illegal to, in, and I don't know if this is a, is a national, if this is federal law or if this was done by states, but that you cannot um, dictate where a sex offender can live, that a sex offender has the right to live anywhere However, there are some restrictions to what they can be done, such as sex offenders can't live within school districts. They can't live with, I mean, within certain, you know, ratio, uh, uh, radii of around schools or around public parks. And so that there are now neighborhood developers who are developing their neighborhoods that have parks, very tiny parks that are situated exactly precisely a quarter mile from one another as a radius so that there is nowhere within the large neighborhood that someone who's a sex offender can legally go. And I think as long as you have anybody who's willing to think through the planning process to isolate, segregate, and to restrict to that degree because of what they're trying to do, I, I'm, I, have, a, I have a problem thinking about your saying that we should be trying to develop the world we want to live in because um, that, that scares me. Because that's that's the that line takes and brings us to exactly where we are right now, and that's that's my my hesitation. Keith, that was a really long way to get around to advocating for people to to get onto their local planning commissions and to vote local elections. Um, <laughs> but I, I I like where you took that because it's it's not as you know it's it's a lot of a lot of little details are going to get us the society that. You know, I think that we, I won't say that I think that we want, because I think that's a, a, a really broad term, but I think it's, um, to get us to the society, I think that we should want. So I'm going to close it there, guys, and say uh, thank you very much. This was, uh, I think that, I, I, I think this is going to be a part one of a multi, multi-phase so. conversation, because um, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, so Lyle, I'll say thank you. Jonathan, Keith. Thanks, Lyle. Until the next one. Thanks. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Lyle. Thank you. All right.